Open the pod bay doors, Hal. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. Well, welcome back, everybody, to Take Me to Your Reader, discussing adapted science fiction at its best and worst. I'm Seth. I'm James. And I'm Colin. And this time we're going to be talking about one of the most influential science fiction films, um, one that consistently tops lists of the greatest science fiction films of all time, and that is 2001 A Space Odyssey, the Stanley Kubrick film from, what, 1968? Is that right? That sounds right. Yeah. A film that was co-written with Arthur Arthur C. Clarke and sort of based on the Arthur C. Clarke short story, The Sentinel, and we'll talk more kind of about the adaptation aspect of it as we go. And to help us discuss this weird, slow science fiction film, we have with us a guest who is an aficionado of that kind of film, Ben Bono from the Sci-Fi Christian. How's it going, guys? Thanks for joining us. Welcome. Well, thanks for having me. And really, it's kind of thanks for inviting yourself on. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> I did kind of do that, didn't I? Yeah. Yeah, because Matt was talking about, um, he was going to be on to talk about The Martian and mentioned that our format was talking about books adapted into movies. And Ben's like, oh, hey, uh, there's a lot of Kubrick that's adapted. And so maybe that's uh, something to talk about, about you being a Kubrick fan. Yeah. Well, actually, almost all of Kubrick is adapted outside of his first two films, Fear and Desire and Killer's Kiss. Uh, his next 11 are all based on novels or in this case, a short story. Uh, but yeah, he, he pretty much did exclusively adaptations for his entire career. Nice. Now, so when Matt was on, we kind of got the history of the sci-fi Christian, so we don't necessarily need to revisit that. But sure. um, I did want to give you a chance to kind of talk about your background and like how how did it come to be that you became, um, as you put it, a fan of weird, slow science fiction films? You know, I, I think it kind of just has sort of crept up on me over the last couple of years. I, uh, I'd seen some Kubrick, you know, I'd seen like The Shining, I'd seen A Clockwork Orange a while back, I'd watched 2001 once or twice. And then I'd say within the last year, year and a half, really started to get into the rest of his filmography uh, and really, you know, kind of had my Kubrick revelation where you go from, I think where a lot of people are of just kind of admiring a movie like 2001 to really being able to appreciate it uh, and enjoy it on a, a completely different level to then watching the rest of his filmography. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with the the documentary on The Shining Room 237, which is all the weird conspiracy things, but I watched that and that kind of got me. I mean, they're all crazy. Or most of them are crazy <laughs> on that documentary, but it kind of got me watching Kubrick with fresh eyes and you know, saw Eyes Wide Shut, which I was expecting one thing, and it turned out to be a completely different movie. Uh, really enjoyed that. And then just sort of worked my way through the rest of Hill's filmography and then have really gotten into cinema pretty heavily since then, classic cinema, foreign cinema. Uh, and yeah, I, I love the weird, slow science fiction movies or stuff other people would consider boring, I suppose. I, I just kind of, I, I enjoy it. Um, hmm. You know, I've watched uh, Tarkovsky's Solaris, the adapt, not the James Cameron, Steven Soderbergh adaptation, right. but the one from the 60s. That's on our list. Okay. Yeah, that's that's a, a really, really good movie. Uh, but it is another long, slow one. It get, it's, it's interesting because it gets a lot of comparisons to 2001, but Tarkovsky actually went into it as a trying to make the anti-2001. <laughs> and I don't think he succeeded on that point, but he certainly succeeded at making a great movie. Um, just watched a couple of days ago the David Bowie film, The Man Who Fell to Earth, which is another one that people just kind of throw up their hands and say, oh, that's so in- incomprehensible and, and really enjoyed that. So yeah, I'm not much of a, 
I mean, I, I, I do the pop culture stuff and everything, but I, I enjoy sure. more thoughtful, slower science fiction stuff, stuff that uh, like 2001 leaves room for thought and contemplation along the way. And a lot of room, really. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it does. Yeah, yeah I, I'm I'm well prepared, Seth. Even before you know, we were talking before we started recording, and you said, "Oh, you might not. There might not be quite as much enthusiasm for Kubrick on here as you have." Uh, <laughs> no, I'm I'm ready to be the Kubrick apologist today. So sounds good. I will make sure to put a link in the show notes. Some. I don't know how long ago it was. It was probably last summer. You guys did an episode like the Kubrick conspiracy or yeah, yeah. or something. And that was, a, that was an excellent episode with a kind of a good survey of, of Kubrick. Um, so I'll put that link in the show notes. Cool. So I, I think we were talking before we started recording. I, I may have already hit record, but I'm not sure. But um, we were talking about how last April 1st, we flipped the script. Instead of doing a um, a novel into a movie, we did a novel from a movie. So we talked about the total recall novelization. Um, we're recording this on April 2nd. Not April 1st, but I, I still think we almost fit that bill this time with the novelization thing, just in how 2001 kind of came to be with the movie and the film. And that's, that's I wanted to talk a, a bit about that because Colin has done some reading on a book called, I believe, um, The Lost Worlds of 2001. Is that right, Colin? That's right. And so so maybe we could talk a little bit about kind of the origins of, of this entire thing. So Colin, do you want to take that? Yeah. I read the book about five weeks ago, <laughs> which is one of the problems with not recording in March. Right. <laughs> um, let me instead start with, with a little bit of the introduction to the two, the, well, the millennial edition of 2001. Mm. So Stanley Kubrick had just finished making Dr. Strangelove and he wanted to move on to do something even more ambitious, almost like mythological in scope, talking about the, the potential future of humanity. And the person that he tapped to help him with that project was uh, Arthur C. Clarke. At the time, a very, very uh, popular, influential science fiction writer. Mm-hmm. One of the big three. One of the big three. And the they went through a whole bunch of his stories. And the, the story they picked to form the core of it was The Sentinel, right? Which is a story about finding an alien artifact on the moon and what happens when you begin trying to see what it does and, and uh, you know why it might be there. And in good old American fashion, just blow it up. <laughs> they did try a blow up. They did try to blow up. And if you read the entire series of the 2001 novels, 2001, 2010, 2061, 20, yep. 2061, and then 3001, you do get the Sentinel from beginning to end. Oh, so interesting. It's, it's kind of a cool resolution. I've only read through 2010. I'd recommend stopping there. That's uh, what I, that, that was kind of the reason. I think Colin or my dad might have cautioned me. Sorry, go ahead, Colin. No, no, I was just thinking, it's like, yeah, it's... Unless it's horror, yeah, it wasn't horrible, but it, it, it can be worth finishing because it does kind of bring some resolution to some open storylines and stuff. Yeah. I could also read the Wikipedia entries. There you <laughs> you could also. Yes, because I <laughs> never do that. No, never. <laughs> yeah. So I, I was looking at the, um, at Barnes and Noble, they have kind of the free sample you can get of the ebook. Mm-hmm. And the entire kind of introduction from Clark is there. And he, he says in the introduction, he says, 2001 is often said to be based on the Sentinel, but that's a gross oversimplification. The two bear much the same relationship as an acorn and an oak tree. And, and then he kind of goes on to talk about how they were basically looking around for other things to adapt into the film. And, and they, they pulled in some stuff from a couple of his other stories, like um, Encounter in the Dawn, mm-hmm. um, which I haven't read. I don't know, if Colin, if you've done any of that. No, I haven't. But there were several other short stories that they that they kind of pulled influences from. So you say it was oft, often credited, as you quote it. 
Did, was it not actually based on that or something or, or what? Like, how is that, how is that ambiguous, I guess? Yeah, I think, I think what he's saying is there is inspiration from that story and other stories. And so, I mean, like Colin was saying, right? 2001 definitely doesn't fully adapt. No, sure. Um, I mean, the there's not a whole lot to adapt from it, right? You got to kind of expand True. out of it, but. Yeah, but I mean, and maybe, maybe we, we can start talking about the Sentinel a bit because it's a brief story, but it introduces a huge idea. Right. Um, yeah. And, and that, Colin, is, I think what you're saying is explored in the, that series. Yes. Yeah. Well, I, I kind of thought the story led to something that was completely different than the direction 2001 took, though. Okay. Explain. To me, it seemed like a prelude to something like akin to an alien invasion movie or a story or a novel or something like that. Yeah, I think there's that question in there, right? Um, you know, who, who would leave this here and right. for what purpose? And, and you know, does this mean now that they know we're here, we're going to come for you? Right. The, the puerile and completely stupid implementation of this is um, Battleship, the movie Battleship. You know, oh, where, they, sure. where they send that big signal <laughs> off to where they think the, right. that other world is. Um, and that triggers an invasion like in six mm-hmm, weeks. Mm-hmm. Um, or I don't know. Even if it's 10 years, it's still completely unrealistic. But right. Yeah. Now that they know we're here, are they going to come for us or what's going to happen? Yeah. Yeah. I th- so. certainly think it's ambiguous at the end of the, the story as far as whether or not they're going to show up hostile yeah. or, or what's going to happen. But yeah, it, it definitely ends with the implication that something is coming here, which you're right. That's completely different from the movie, which is about going there. Right. Right. Yeah. And the Sentinel itself or whatever you want to call it, the 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 slab. <laughs> the monolith. There you go. <laughs> the monolith. <laughs> Seemed uh, completely different than, I don't know, the little bubble thing that was in the book or a story. Short story. Oh, the pyramid? Yeah. Surrounded by a bubble, right? Yeah. So shield or some sort. Yeah, so so that that bit of it was completely different where instead of being buried under the regolith, you know, it was actually undisturbed basically because of its shield. Right. And so being able to break through that shield was kind of the signal that okay, you've arrived technologically now far we can enough check that you now out. we can have contact. It's just yeah. the, the the contact bit yeah. from I the just to me the tone of the story seemed more hostile than uh the tone of the movie. Sure. And I mean you have to realize it was written in 1948. You know, so this is sure. this is right yeah. at the beginning of the Cold War, and and you know the the, the scares right, about nuclear right. weapons and all that kind of stuff. Yep. Well, uh, is there anything else to talk about about the Sentinel? I mean, I don't think we want to give too much away. We've kind of already said what the core concept of it is, and a lot of those short stories, you know, they there's reward in reading them, partially mm-hmm. because of how short they are, and and this one is so full of implication that I feel like it's definitely still worth reading. Yeah, I would say so. I I, I, I liked it. It was a good good oh, yeah. story for sure. Yeah, Yeah, I think that it kind of demonstrates what to me is both the the strength of Clark, but also his limitation that you brought up the Cold War. uh, And I think you also have to kind of position this as it's a bit of a precursor to the space age and everything. But Clark's somebody who's very focused on the here and now, you know, and yes, his novels sometimes look to the future, but it's very much what are the implications of what we're doing now going to be? in the future. And so he's thinking about things like the cold war and that, mm-hmm. that sense of paranoia, potential, potential doom uh, coming down the road. That's there. But there's also the sense of that uh, as humanity is preparing within the next few decades to get ready to go to the moon and go into space and all of this stuff. 
what's that going to mean for us taking our place among the stars and all of that. And so I, yeah, I think it's very much a novel that's focused on the culture and in some ways anticipating the culture of the next couple decades, but it's really positioned smack dab in the middle of the 20th century in, in terms of that culture and mindset. Uh, whereas I think Kubrick gets to, takes the story in a, a place that's a little more transcendent than that and, and mm. certainly reaches back farther than that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, definitely. Definitely the elements where they talk about this being a United States operation and yeah. we're not going to involve the Chinese, not involve the Russians. And those are themes which gets which get propagated all the way out through 2061. Right. Uh, hmm. Of course, by 3001, the world's a much different place. Well, you even have some hints of that in the movie. If you remember when uh, uh, Dr. Floyd shows up at the space station, and he's kind of just hanging out in the lounge and mm-hmm. he's talking to the British guy and he's, uh, you know, not letting us land at uh, Clavius, which is the moon base. There is a violation of such and such treaty. And so there is a sense that there is some type of national segregation still going on within right. the movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And we, we've talked about that too in the past with anything that's kind of from this era that's um, from from the Cold War. A lot of them just assume, well, the Cold War will go on forever. Right. Um, right. You know, we will like always Colossus. have the Soviets. <laughs> yeah, like Colossus. Yeah. That was the last thing that we talked about. Um, and just, just kind of trying to make guesses about technology, but totally whiffing on changes in society. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, now, James, you did not read the 2001 book, right? Nope. Yeah. And so it's interesting, too, in that um, that introduction to the, to the Nook book, um, where he kind of talks about the idea was to write the entire novel first and then base the screenplay on that. But it ended up being kind of parallel development. And Colin, I don't know if you have any more information about that. So if, if you're lucky enough to have a copy of The Lost Worlds of 2001... Uh, and if you're in the Portland area, I'd be more than happy to loan you mine because uh, I had to search all oh, wow. over to find one. <laughs> Powell's bookstore had one. <laughs> um, and even uh, they had to go digging for it back in the stacks because I could. it wasn't out in front. Right. It's, nice. it's a really interesting so look into the truly lost worlds of 2001. <laughs> oh, yeah. Lost Colin, world, lost book. Colin just likes to make those bookkeepers work. For yeah, a he living. does. <laughs> Uh, he he ends up sharing a lot of his journal notes from the creation of the novel and the series of evolutions it went through. Mm-hmm. And you even get snapshots of different parts of the novel at different places. Oh, that's cool. Um, for example, at one point, at uh, how spoiler are we going to go here? Uh, we always spoil the crap out of everything. Okay. Yeah. I mean, so, it's 1968. Come on. Right. right. <laughs> so, so one of the crises ends up not being that Hal goes crazy, but that – they lose their antenna connection with the earth mm. because the, it gets hit by um, gets hit by a spaceship. One of their own little pods. Oh, interesting. Uh, there's a whole different theme about the beginning where you actually get a point of view from a, the, the aliens land on earth and they're taking samples of, of earth animals and proto hominids and doing experiments on them. Mm. So it, there's more of a teaching aspect rather than what you get in the book, which is, uh, you know, visions and dreams and, and, and an approach like that. Yeah. And then the ending of the book is substantially different and considerably more concrete than well, what the novel ended up being or the movie ended up being. Okay. Why don't we circle back to that toward the end when, when we talk about, you know, what's the end mean? Mm-hmm. Because yeah, I don't, I don't think we need to do like a book march through or, or anything like that. I think we should as quickly as possible actually get to the film. 
um, because that's the thing, right? I mean, pe- people are going to, they're going to be kind of attracted to listening to this for having watched the movie, not for having read the book in all likelihood. Though it was interesting when I, I kind of put out something on Facebook and um, on our on our page, and we got a couple responses, and I dialogued with a couple of the people who had read both the book and seen the movie. Um, and um, Malk, who almost always comments first on everything that we had, Pretty much said he's not really a fan of either, which was interesting because I I would think that. Are you talking about the book 2001 or the short story? Yeah, I'm talking about the book. Okay. So So make sure we got our terms straightened out. Yeah. And I I think, you know, so kind of one of the guiding principles of our our show from the beginning was, right, to highlight some stuff that is less well known because 2001, the film is very, very famous. Not that many people know about the Sentinel. Right, right. So super fans do. Um, but, but yeah, I got several responses that are like, um, I think Jeff Palermo said this, this is the movie that separates the men from the boys (laughs) and, uh, and Michael Simshauser over in Australia, he, he said it was, you know, a masterpiece. And I think he quoted Clark as saying something like, if you understand 2001, we have failed, which was interesting. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Um, Is this a, is this a man card movie? No, I, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Not according to Colin. <laughs> well, according to me, there are very, very few things which garner you a man card. Right. Okay. So, so let's let's talk about this though. I mean, should films be clear? Not necessarily. Uh, yeah. No, I think it depends on what the artist wants to do. Right. What, what, it, I think it depends on yeah the the point of the movie, I suppose. Right. Well, I, I, I will say. I think 2001 is a lot less ambiguous than maybe its reputation says. Okay. And may- maybe in the course of this discussion, we can, we can clear up some, some things yeah. about that. Yeah. I mean, classically, the movie is, is discussed as being too vague and very open, and the book is counter-criticized as being overly specific. Yeah. And uh, I and can so understand that. Really, you have to talk about them in reference to one another. Yeah. That's true. Um, because yeah, I mean, there's, there's lots of films where I watch them. I'm like, why did we have that exposition that we, we already knew this and, and you know, you don't have that kind of criticism, certainly of 2001. <laughs> yeah. You should love no. that movie. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, so I wanted to talk kind of about first impressions of the film. Cause Ben, you, you mentioned you've watched it a number of times. What did right. you think of it the first time you watched it? Uh, the first time I watched it, I didn't, I didn't get through it actually. I, I got bored and turned it off and that was probably about 10 years or so ago. Yeah. Uh, you know, this coming so from I, the guy I, that likes slow sci-fi movies or science that's fiction right. movies. Well, hey, hey, we all, we all change over time, right? And you got to keep in mind, Ben, Ben is a bit younger than us. So, you know, he, yeah. what were you, 20? Uh, I'm 30. Yeah. So yeah, about, yeah, probably so. around 20 when, when I watched the movie the first time. Yeah. Attention span right. of 20 yeah. year olds. Touché. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Though I will say, I will say that my five-year-old son and seven-year-old daughter have now watched it with me twice, wow. and my son absolutely loves it. That's wild. That's cool. Which, uh, not to get off topic from what we're, we're saying, but Kubrick actually predicted that. And I've, I have a book of interviews with him, and he said that kids will appreciate this more than adults, no, at least on a first viewing, <laughs> because kids naturally gravitate to visual storytelling, whereas adults want talk and exposition. Hmm. I could definitely buy into that. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so I think that for me, yeah, I I definitely can understand the perspective because I was there of it being boring, slow, confusing, what have you. Uh, and then I think over the last few years, watching it a number of times, I I've gone now to the opposite extreme. I don't think it's boring at all. I, I find myself completely enraptured by it, uh, and I think that 
even yesterday when I was rewatching it, uh, there's things I was seeing and thinking about that I had never seen or thought about before in my my previous viewing experiences. You're, you're spoiling the the second part of this discussion here. Ben. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> he's just no, leading into it. That's all. So, James, I was going to have you go last since this was your first viewing of it. So, um, oh, okay. Colin, what about you? When did you first watch it, and what did you think? Uh, I watched it in the '80s. It probably would have been just before 2010 came out as a movie. Okay. Uh, I don't remember exactly what I thought about it then, but I can, you know, after doing a rewatch, I can tell you, I, I found it boring. Uh, <laughs> so you're going to spoil this too? <laughs> yeah. It's a mutiny. I tell you. No, I mean, I, I have to, I have to say, you know, it's an art movie and I apparently am not very fond of art movies. Hmm. Uh, I, I don't like modern art. I don't like, I don't like the classical genre of modern music. So, let me ask you this though. I, did you read the book before seeing the movie? Oh, that I can't tell you. Okay, because because I know that you you know you you have read some nerdy things from from way back, and and I didn't know like at what point what the chronology was there. Yeah, I don't remember. Okay, so not a lot of change in in your opinion. No. Okay. Well, so for me, um, I I think I told you guys about it when we were out there running a while back. That that um, my wife and I had done kind of a a kick where we were trying to pick up some classic films that we hadn't seen. So like we watched Casablanca and Lawrence of Arabia and Citizen Kane. And we were kind of looking through lists and we saw 2001 on there. And I thought, okay, science fiction, totally not up my wife's alley at all. Um, like she didn't see star Wars before we met, which <laughs> I still married her. Um, <laughs> but, but we, we, we put 2001 on and we watched it and it, it finished, you know, with the star child and we kind of went, well, right. we watched that one. <laughs> um, <laughs> But just weren't quite sure what to make of it. And and um, so uh, last year, I guess it was, Ben, you guys did the top 100 science fiction films. Right. Um, and I put my ballot in and I deliberately omitted 2001 <laughs> and even put on there, I'm omitting 2001 because it's so inscrutable. <laughs> so like, I couldn't, I couldn't just omit it. I had to, I had to justify why I did it. Um, right. So. Um, but it's interesting. And, and so that's why, you know, when you volunteered to come on here, I thought, okay, he's a huge fan of these things. It has to be 2001 that we talk about and we'll see if he can talk me into liking it. And, um, and so, you know, I don't know if it's because of, uh, your tips, but I did find it a lot more compelling, um, the second time I watched it. So, and then I watched it a third time with these guys and we'll get back to talking about that. Um, but maybe at this point we should ask James, right. what did you think? I enjoyed it, uh, be, mostly because I haven't seen it before, and I knew this was like one of those movies where I have to watch it you know, as a proper science fiction nerd and mm -hmm. all that. Um, right. But I, I enjoyed the the visuals of it the most, I think, just because, especially watching in HD, they held up really, really, really well. Uh, like seriously, they were they were amazing. I was blown away that this is 1968 stuff. That's crazy. Um, yeah. Well, the other the other crazy thing to me about that is, um, you know, they're writing this and filming it. When did we go to the moon? I don't remember the year. Do you remember? Nineteen sixty nine. Yeah, that, so that was the landing. But remember, we had all those preparation trips in advance. Okay. Yeah. yeah but but still, it just seems like they had to do some guesswork, right, on on what things are going to look like. And that that was one of the differences between the book and the movie was they had originally scoped it as going to Saturn, mm -hmm. right. and and mm -hmm. the book does, um, but. In the movie, I, I guess they thought we don't know quite enough about Saturn yet to to put a convincing Saturn up there and not have it look terrible once we get more. Um, it's easier you know, to have a singular gas giant instead of one with rings and all that. I imagine. Yeah, 
Um, yeah, they had special effects problems was right. a contributing factor to that. Yeah, and I, th- I think it was the right move to go with Jupiter. And I mean, Saturn is very compelling with its rings and everything, but you know, the fact that Jupiter is so large, you know, um, mm-hmm. it, I think it makes sense thematically as the right place to go. Right. So maybe at this point, anything else got anything kind of um, prelude stuff you want to talk about, about the movie or about, about the experience watching it? Well, you talked about how it came out right before the moon landing and you got to mention the, the conspiracy theory that Kubrick faked the moon landing. <laughs> right. And right. <laughs> yeah. he's the one who did it. And, and so this was the warm up act. Yeah. yeah I, I have heard that, that, okay, that, that looks so good that yeah. there's no reason to think that it couldn't have been done uh, with Hollywood right. methods. I read a joke a couple weeks ago. I, I wish I could credit where I, I read it, but I can't remember. But it was essentially that Kubrick did fake the moon landing, but he was so anal about uh, details that he made them actually go to the moon to do it. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. <laughs> nice. <laughs> that's, uh, that's, that's like a Mobius circle. Right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Um, I, I guess I should mention when when we all watched it at my house a couple weeks ago, this was my second time watching it. And to be perfectly honest, like my family was out of town and I watched um, 2001 and thought, you know, this is gorgeous. It's beautiful on the, on the Blu-ray. Mm-hmm. Um, but I did fall asleep. Um, so <laughs> I, I took a little nap during you know. that, uh, the, I don't know, the hyper realization part where he was entering the little. Oh, oh yeah. yeah. Through yeah, the yeah, Stargate. Yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll, we'll get back to that. Because um, that lasted way too long. Uh-huh. Yeah. Well, yeah, I want to talk about that as a, as a specific point. Um, well, just wait till you guys watch Solaris if you think that's too long. <laughs> oh, great. Uh, <laughs> thanks, Ben. <laughs> awesome. Um, but uh, yeah, I like I started watching it too late, and so I just I got too tired, and 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 being as old as I am now, you know, like I can't stay up past midnight anymore. Um, but. But, you know, I pause and I'm like, okay, I'm really looking forward to getting back to watching this. And, and so I watched it the rest of the way through and thought, you know, I, I felt like, like I had had a conversion. I'm like, I liked that movie. You know, I never thought that that was going to be possible. But so then um, we had, let's see, mm-hmm. James, we had you and Colin and Colin, both of your boys were here, right? Yes. Um, 16 and 15? 15 and 16. Yeah. And and then my 14 year old. Um, and, you know, we, we, we did do a little bit of... Uh, not laughter, but, but, you know, we talked quite a bit during it, um, because right. you kind Mystery of Mystery Science Theater style. Um, <laughs> yeah. The thing, the thing that, um, <laughs> kind of, yeah. The thing that kind of stood out to my son though, was the, the kind of thematic music f- for the monolith, that, that mm-hmm. disturbing choral stuff. Um, and he still will walk around, you know, he'll come up behind me and go, <laughs> he does it all the time. That's awesome. and, like this, this is a kid who doesn't like singing in any way. Um, and yet he'll, he'll come up and, and, and just do that, trying to set a creepy mood. So, and that, that music is, it's just creepy as I'll get out. It, it just grated on me. Oh, really? Yeah. It didn't creep me out. Hmm. Well, um, so why don't we talk through what um, Ben's suggestions were that he had sent me? And and like I said, I'm not I'm not sure if if I necessarily credit Ben with entirely like me enjoying this, or if it was just going back into ben, it with a different just attitude, say it. kind of. <laughs> yeah, it could have been. It could I'll have. take credit for it. <laughs> okay, sounds good. Um, it also could have been just I mean, like you said, Ben, like you know, watching it when you're a little bit older, you, you do have a different perspective on things, and and even Colin, you mentioned looking at it as art and the fact that you don't really like art forms or art films, not art forms. Um, and, 
I don't know, somehow looking at it as art did help me to appreciate it this time, especially just looking at how stunning it looks visually. Yeah, I, I tried to understand why I didn't like it because it's science fiction. It is beautiful. It's considered you know iconic by people. Mm-hmm. But I, you know, I got to realizing, you know, I couldn't figure out what the story was. Yeah. And without a story, uh, you don't have a plot. You don't have character development. It just, it's there and it looks pretty. I think it's there to be thought provoking. And I think on all those things, it succeeds really, really well. Mm-hmm. Um, if, if that's, if that movie was published today though, it would show up in little art houses all over oh, the United sure. States and it would just simply fizzle and die. Yeah, and I think that that's just kind of a you know the weight of its influence on science fiction films um, is that you know you see its influences on all kinds of other things, but people but those films take things in a very different direction because you you can definitely see influence on influences on things like Star Wars, but that's more of an action movie, mm-hmm. and and so it, you know it, what what is its place in modern cinema? You know that was actually one of the reasons I think I appreciate two thousand one this time around too is because right now we're inundated with science fiction action movies. We don't get very many science fiction movies yeah, anymore. Right. I mean, the last proper yeah. science fiction movie I think I saw prior to this was probably Ex Machina. Or it was actual science fiction. That's exactly fiction. what I was going to say, yeah. And that movie was awesome. Yeah. Yep. yeah, or something like Moon, right? That definitely yep. draws from yeah. 2001 as well. You know, maybe if the movie had only been an hour and a half long <laughs> instead of two hours and 40 minutes, yeah. it, it would have more impact because it'd be more dense. Well, you know, Colin, it was originally about 20 minutes longer. Uh, Kubrick is famous for shortening his films after after they'd been in theaters for a couple weeks, and that was the case with this one. And to my knowledge, the longer cut doesn't exist anymore, uh, most unfortunately for us Kubrick obsessives. But yeah, he cut about 15, 20 minutes out of it after it had been out for a couple weeks. I wonder what oh, interesting. I, I wonder if uh, – I wonder what he cut. Yeah. I wonder Does what that happen out. anymore? Um. Does that happen? I, yeah. gosh, I I don't really think it does. You know, most of the time, it's uh, if you hear of a director's cut, it's lengthening it, not shortening it, right? Right. Yeah. Uh, but there are a handful that have done that. I mean, uh, well, he there's different cuts depending on what continent you live on for The Shining. If you live here in America, The Shining is 20 minutes longer than it is if you go buy a copy in Europe, huh. and it really changes the perception of the movie. I think I, I have both editions. Uh, and so Kubrick did this all the time. Yeah, it's it's very a very unusual move. Hmm. You'd think that would be like with with digital projection now. You'd think that would be easier to do, right? To, right. To be like, oh, you know, what? we're gonna we're gonna trim twenty minutes from that one. Yeah. Because um, back then you weren't doing that. You had to you had to distribute a different actual cut of the film. Hmm. Yeah, that's part of what's uh, not not to get too sidetracked, but part of what's interesting about Eyes Wide Shut is that he died right after he had finished the movie. Yeah. But with Kubrick, it's, well, was the movie really finished? You know, he screened the finished copy for Warner Brothers and then died a few days later. But it's highly possible that had he lived even another six months, we would have a very different cut of that movie. Hmm. Yeah. And that's one I haven't seen. For Kubrick, this is it for me. I've only seen 2001. Oh, really? You haven't seen well, Dr. Okay. Strangelove or The Shining? or Technically, I watched The Shining when I was... Not at an appropriate age, uh, and and like just the the idea of watching that movie now still just scares the piss out of me. Yeah. Uh, sorry, scares the pee out of me. That way, Matt can right. post this with <laughs> reservation. <laughs> um, but but uh, we as we've discussed, it's, I'm I'm on record as being a complete wuss when it comes to horror movies. Right. So 
Well, I think you should give it another shot. I mean, not, not to go off on the shiny, but uh, it's honestly, it's more unsettling than it is uh, scary. Okay. In my opinion. I might, I, I might do that. We'll see. But I, I think I would, I would rather proceed to some other Kubrick before then. Like Dr. Strangelove is one I'd love to do. Oh yeah. Yeah. Okay. So um, maybe at this point, Ben, we can get into your, your kind of suggestions that you gave. Do you have them in front of you? I have them in front of me. Uh, I do not have them in front of me. I can okay. get them in front of me. No, I, I got it. And then, then I can kind of follow up on a couple of things. Um, so point number one, and I brought this one up to Colin. Mm-hmm. Um, you said, I think you almost have to watch 2001 as you would a silent film. And, and you talked about this with your kids where they re- react to the visual storytelling. Um, but when I, when I mentioned that to Colin, Colin said, well, it practically is a silent film. <laughs> <laughs> and, and there are great stretches of it where, where there's no dialogue at all. And when we were watching the movie, my wife was down the hall in the office where I am right now. And so she could hear it. We had it, you know, blasting loud. Um, and you, there's so much of the film where all you're hearing is like the breathing inside a helmet. And yeah. maybe, maybe some score under it. Um, but she mm-hmm. said that was a very strange movie to listen to. <laughs> Which, I mean, kind of goes to your point, right? Watching it more as a silent film. Obviously, listening to it, you're not going to get anything out of it. Yeah, I, I think yeah, I do have my points up in front of me, and uh, not to get ahead of ourselves, but we'll talk about how I think it, the film really divides up into four different narratives. And the first and last one of those mm-hmm. is are completely silent. So the first Dawn of Man narrative, and then from the point where David yeah. Bowman goes through the, the Stargate, there's no dialogue in either of those two stories in the film. Yeah, I guess that's true. Yeah. I hadn't I hadn't realized that there was no no discussion, no no dialogue at all after after he goes through that. And there's not even the thing that you have in the book where he says uh, it's full of stars. Right. Yeah, one of the most famous quotes of this movie isn't actually in the movie. Right. Yeah, that's actually one of my problems with it. I think that too many people have seen both and apply details and issue uh, ideas from one to the other freely. You're talking about 2010. No, I'm talking about 2001. I think people have taken ideas from the book and applied them to the movie. For oh, example, okay. someone on Facebook named uh, the main proto-hominid in the first sequence. Right. And we never learn his name in the movie. Yeah. Right. Yeah, he pulled that from the book. Yeah. And so yeah, you have to be careful because they really are different creatures. Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. So I, am I mistaken that in the 2010 uh, film, they actually did have that quote? Where, like, that was I believe it opens the movie. I haven't actually seen the movie, but having read about it, I, I think that that does open the film. Okay. Or, or that could just be from the novel. Um, I'm not sure what I'm thinking of. Um, yeah. So your, your point number two was, was looking at the film as four different narratives. And I think that can be one of the frustrating things about the film is that you, you don't feel like there's as much of a through line uh, through the entire film as a typical one. Um, because you have the very, for instance, you have the very right. abrupt, but awesome um, match cut from the bone up in the air to the, the orbiter. Right. And, and then even you know, at the end of that, you just cut to the Jupiter mission. Well, I think the through line though, is the evolution of human consciousness. Yes. You know, and, and Kubrick isn't trying to tell a story in the, in the conventional sense of here are your characters, here's the plot and we resolve the action. He's trying to take us from the dawn of mankind uh, to whatever would follow uh, mankind. So kind of a post-human evolution. And sure. so that's the through line is, is what does it, 
What does it mean to be human over this span of millions of years? What does it mean to be human in the past, to have developed as human, to be human in the present, and then what will humanity become in the future? Yeah. Yeah, and I've definitely seen some kind of speculation and um, you know fan theories about all those kind of things. Any comments from the peanut gallery? Colin or James? Nope. No. Nope. Okay. Well, we can, we can move on then. Yep. With um, I, I did have a question on on point number three. So Ben, do you want to give us that one? And sure. It? So yeah, I talked about the showdown between Dave and Hal, uh, to the showdown between the monkeys at the beginning. You know where they're fighting, and uh, it, it's really an interesting theme. And I, I was kind of I had this one in mind a lot yesterday when I was watching the film that there's all sorts of contrasts like this where. Humanity is very raw and savage and even not human at the beginning of the film, you know, Mm -hmm. as they're still monkeys and everything. Yeah. And yet this step forward comes partially or not, maybe not as a result, but is accompanied by a descent into savagery, right? Where they develop tools and now there we see them beating one another and we see a sort of violence taking and we see a sense of competition uh, in a very violent form developing. And then we cut to storyline number two, and here everything is very sophisticated, and everything is uh, – there's a lot of symmetry, and we have the beautiful shots of the ships coming in for landing and the classical music playing, and this is where a lot of people get bored. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know. But it's, it's very – everything's very civilized, very uh, orderly, very neat. And then you go to, to part three, and this is where – the comparisons and contrasts to those first two parts really start to get interesting because you have uh, you compare the 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 scenes of uh, David and uh, Frank in the pods to the scenes of the ships in space in part two, and instead of classical music playing over, we have silence or we have this heavy breathing and we have this almost raw humanity returning to the fold as humanity begins to prepare itself to take this next step forward. And of course that culminates with the showdown between Hal, where once again, uh, violence has to take place and there has to be a sense of competition and it's live or die. And uh, I think part of what Kubrick's trying to show us is that uh, humanity as it reaches this great point of civilization is also reaching a point where it's preparing to take its next step down into savagery so it can take the, whatever the next step <laughs> forward is. Hmm. That's deep. That's what happens when you watch the film a whole bunch of times. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> you eventually start to have these thoughts uh, as you're sitting there listening to the classical music and watching the ship's dock. And yeah. And all this. I, I mean, I guess, I guess the counterpoint to that would be, well, okay. The reason you're having all these deep thoughts is because the movie doesn't convey them so much, you know, I, like I'm, I, I'm kind of speaking for Colin here. Well, yeah, it kind of instigates deep thought, right? Yeah. Yeah. I think it gives you space for that. I, I think right. that it's not I, spoon feeding you everything. Exactly. And I wouldn't say that that's the only way to interpret it. I think it's a movie sure. that kind of to go back to that Arthur C. Clarke quote, where if you understand it, we failed. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that's quite the way I would put it, but I think it's more – it's a film that opens itself up to those different interpretations. Yeah. It says here is the development of humanity and we're going to show you this and there's going to be these contrasts and and sometimes it's going to feel very elegant and sometimes it's going to feel very raw. And what sort of thoughts does that provoke in you as it gives you the space to develop that? Right. Mm-hmm. For a second there, Ben, I thought you were going to go and when you were talking about the – I guess the second part of the story where 
everything seems very symmetrical and civilized and highly technological. Um, I, I think there's still a sense of irony in there, though, because they're still talking about the Cold War and people being savage to each other. So in that respect, not much has changed, even though we've evolved so far. Right. It's actually one of the things that that uh, I was noticing yesterday, and I've noticed a little bit before, but was fleshing it out of my mind, is you, that Kubrick does have a sense of that, yes, there's this beauty and the symmetry, but it's also presented as being incomplete and there still is a rawness underneath the 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 mass. Right. Uh, yeah. One of my favorite examples of that is if you're familiar with Kubrick's one point perspective where the shots are very symmetrical and everything's, you know, geometrically divided on the screen and just very beautiful to look at. Um, it's tough to convey over audio, but, you know, you can Google Kubrick one point perspective and get a lot of examples of this from his films. So would, would like the shots with the monolith and the sun and the moon be examples? Of yeah, that? yeah, exactly. Yeah. Or, you know, shots of where we see the cockpit as the, the ships coming in for a landing. And so there's all of this and the symmetry, but then there's a number of shots that are almost symmetrical, but mm. not quite. He like, like one of the ones that's famous or that sticks out in my mind is in the conference room where Dr. Floyd is giving his presentation and the camera's positioned right behind that kind of U-shaped table. Mm-hmm. And it looks like a one point perspective symmetrical shot, but it's not, it's slightly off to the right. And so it's slightly imperfect. Hmm. And I think that that visually he's trying to get across exactly what you were saying, James, that there is still this sense of savagery underneath the veneer of civilization. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, even taking kind of geopolitics out of it, you know, he's he's talking about the need for secrecy. Um, and, right. And this is a common thing in science fiction when there's when there's an alien contact, you know, how much does the government let people know? Um, kind of the line from Men in Black, right? Um, where Will Smith is like, "Hey, why don't you just tell people people are smart," and he's like, "No, no, people are dumb. A yeah. person, a person is smart, but people are, you know, irrational." Um, and so the idea that of the the kind of societal changes that could happen as a result of finding this alien artifact on the moon. Yeah, yeah, right. Well, that that, that same theme even plays out in the third part, where you got the uh, competition between yeah. Hal and. Ash, uh, I forget his uh, name. David, David Bowman. Yep. Yeah. David. Between the, there's still that savagery going on to survive yeah. now. Yeah. Because well, either of them or one, Al in particular, feels threatened. Right. I like that part where he's, he, he repeats, you know, I'm afraid. I'm oh, afraid. it's the best scene yeah. in the movie, or one of the best yeah. scenes in the movie. So it's so hypnotic when the way yeah. he keeps repeating himself. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I want to kind of double back on one thing from the Sentinel where we talked about it, where the monolith, I'm just going to call it the monolith because it's the, the analog for it in the, in the movie is the monolith, um, was not buried. It was actually there under a shield. And so the way the aliens would know if we had um, found it would be that, that we could get through the shield. Um, right. Penetrate it in some way. But where I, I really, really liked the idea um, that is in the movie – maybe not explicitly said in the movie, but in the book that the first time the sun touches this thing that's been buried deliberately, that's how they know we're now spacefaring. And I thought that that's just a great kind of booby trap situation. Yeah. But I think you also, (laughs) yeah, but by calling it a booby trap, aren't you going back to your, you know, human racial savagery there? Yeah. I am kind of defaulting to it being a, being a hostile thing. Yeah. I think the, the monoliths in, in the movie 
are activated more by touch than they are by anything else. Yeah, I think if you if you were to take it strictly from the film, I think that is that is correct. Yeah. Uh, which is interesting to look at too, because the three times the monoliths are are touched or are activated, the touch keeps getting farther away. Uh, so the mm-hmm. first time the ape comes up and physically touches it, the second time right, the astronaut touches it, but through a glove. And then the third time it's David Bowman doesn't touch it. He's reaching towards it in bed, Yeah, uh, which is a, a really fascinating thing to think about too. You know, as far as what does that symbol mean? Uh, does that mean that humanity is simultaneously getting farther away while developing into something new? Does it mean that the requirement for actual contact is being lost as we develop into these new beings? There's a lot of ways you could take that. Hmm. Uh, the, the, that trilogy of, of kind of instances in the film. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I like to think of it more as you have to stretch yourself to, right. to grow. Right. Yeah. Another interesting thing I thought about, about this film and about the Sentinel, um, you guys have heard of panspermia, the theory of panspermia, mm-hmm. um, where the, the idea being that some highly technological species went through and seeded life throughout the universe. Um, and that's where, you know, spermia means seed. Um, and really kind of the, this is almost the other side of that where uh, rather than seeding life, they seed intelligence and, 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 um, kind of facilitate advancement. Mm-hmm. Right. And I was trying to come up with a name for that, but I couldn't come up with what goes after pan panlogia, maybe knowledge pangenosis. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. Well, why don't we move on to, to, uh, Tip number five. Oh, hang, hang on a sec. Uh, okay, the Lost Worlds of 2001 actually brings something to that. Because the because it's a novel, there's narrative and plot, and you <laughs> get the point of view of one of the aliens. And that that is that they had gone through the universe, and the thing that they valued most of all was mind. And so they went to every planet trying to develop mind. Hmm. But see, that's part of why I don't like the novel as much, is that to me that uh, and I'll, I'll fully confess that, uh, Colin, I am an art art house movie fan, uh, so maybe some of the stuff just kind of works for me with that. But I don't like taking that ambiguity out of it. I, I like it being a mystery as far as what all this means. I like it that that Kubrick doesn't answer these questions, whereas it seems like Clark wants to dot every I and cross every T. And to me, that makes it so much less interesting. Well, but in the novel, in the in the published novel, that's not in there anymore. Okay. Right, it, it, it's only a, a narrative that comes out of one of the early revisions of the novel. Yeah, I think you can infer it though from the novel, just just because of kind of the detail about um, what the monolith does to what is it, Moonwatcher? Is that the name of the the man ape? I think so. Yeah, yeah, but I don't even think you can incur causality until you read the novel. From the movie, it it might just be observing the birth of intelligence and right, tool right. use. No, I was I was talking about the novel. Okay. I don't know. I think causality is pretty well implied within the film. I I, I could kind of get on board with that for the Dawn of Man one, but I think that, you know, the, at least at the end, the activation of the monolith and David Bowman becoming the star child is pretty unambiguous that those, those two are connected. Yeah. Oh, that actually, uh, when you were talking about the, the increasing distance of the touch – yeah. Um, there's, there's, there was a fourth one in there that was as um, kind of Dave went out in the pod to investigate the one orbiting Jupiter. Right. And so, yeah, he doesn't, he doesn't get particularly close in that one either. But that, and that's the right. one that comes to the Stargate, right? 
So, yeah, yeah. Our, our acid trip in space, <laughs> yeah. right? Well, but that yeah. the the shot that precedes that is one of my favorite shots in the in the whole movie. I love all the monolith shots with the sun and the moon, but I like that then it shifts that perspective onto the moon and then into Jupiter, um, or the orbit of Jupiter. Right. Um, I thought those were stunning images. Yeah. Okay, so point number five, and th- this one's a little beyond me, just because, like I said, my Kubrick filmography is, um, or actually experience with it is is quite limited. But um, the point you make is that the film ends with the star child turning and looking into the camera, which, by the way, is is disturbing. Um, I'm just gonna say, um, <laughs> but you said the very next shot in Kubrick's filmography is Alex from A Clockwork Orange staring into the camera, and. So that's that's one reason why I want to watch that movie because you said that the the films kind of interpret and complement each other. Yeah, I, I always say that my favorite shot or, or cut in a Kubrick movie is actually between these two movies uh, hmm. because I, I could see where the Star Child's disturbing. I've always felt it as being kind of a hopeful image. It's humanity returned to a place of Im- of innocence, kind of out of that savagery. Again, there's lots of ways to interpret the novel or the film, but that that's kind of been my interpretation of it. And so it's very hopeful of here's what's next, and and we have a chance to go forward as something new uh, and something pure. And then we get Clockwork Orange, where you know Alex is is just evil. You know, he's just the pure embodiment mm-hmm. of evil in that film, and that great shot of him at the beginning where he's in the Corova milk bar and he's just staring into the camera with this disgusting, uh, sickening look on his face. And the contrast between the two is really stunning. I wish I could take credit for that observation. I can't, I, I have a book of, uh, Cooper essays of people on Kubrick films and hmm. that I read this last fall that I, I found it in there. Uh, but I think it it really is fascinating to compare those two films. I think they complement one each complement each other, uh, and especially those two moments really cause us to examine what does it mean to be human. Hmm. Well, that's something we might have to look for in the future. I know I know that that's um, that that adaptation does make a change from the ending of the of the short story that it's based on. Right, the novel by Anthony Burgess is 21 chapters long, and the film adapts 20 of them, oh. uh, which is a bit of a wow. publishing precedent for that because the American version uh, always uh, left off the final chapter of that. And I, you know, I, I won't describe what's in it for the sake of spoilers, mm-hmm. so that you, you can have your experience and everything. Uh, but it completely changes the the 21st chapter completely changes the way you interpret the book, in my opinion, mm-hmm. and in a very negative way. So I think Kubrick made the right choice to to knock it off, um, but it's certainly a controversial move in that film. Yeah, well, it's a controversial film. Yes, yeah, it's going to say <laughs> along with everything else in that yeah. film that's yeah. controversial. I think that movie was banned in uh, England for a long time. It actually was banned at Kubrick's request because his family kept getting death threats, and so he made a request oh, to the studio, yeah, <laughs> that it be banned until after his death. And so wow. it was banned until 1999 when he died. Wild. Damn. Okay, so this last point is one that I definitely wanted some some explanation on. You, you said, uh, some people read Hal as the most human character in the whole film. And I'm, I'm curious how that would look. Because I, I, I have, I mean, I guess I do understand he's, you could see that Hal is a little selfish, you know, mm-hmm. um, basically once he understands, look, I've got a, I seem to have a fault of some kind and the humans are going to disconnect me and I can't allow that to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, though I'm not sure you totally get that from the film. And, and again, that's one of the, one of the problems people have with the film is, is what exactly happened with Hal? It doesn't really explain it. 
it doesn't really matter what happened. It matters that it happened. Yeah. yeah. Right? Yeah, the novel explains it, and I don't care for the explanation. Uh, essentially, <laughs> <laughs> the novel kind of says that Hal has this sort of logical contradiction between his orders, but then... Uh, having, He's a divide by zero error. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and, and to me, that's not, not very satisfying, whereas in the, not, in the film, he's... He's a consciousness. He's an artificial intelligence who is forced to to deal with carrying out this mission, and then deciding that humanity is a liability to this mission. And it's it's much more human uh, motivation. I think though, the where you really see Hal as the most human character is that there's not very much emotion in this film at all. Uh, yeah, I talked a while ago about how uh, Tarkovsky's Solaris was mm. meant to be a response to 2001, and that was Tarkovsky's big criticism of, of the movie, is that he felt like there was no emotion whatsoever in the film. Um, whether or not that's a valid criticism, uh, the one place where you do see emotion is from Hal. You know, he we talked afraid. about a little bit. Yeah. yeah, I'm afraid, I'm afraid. And then he's singing Daisy, and it's, mm-hmm. you know, it's the most heartbreaking <laughs> scene in the movie. Yeah. Uh, I, I... You know, that whole sequence to me is just mm. chilling where uh, David Bowman, you know, comes stomping into the room and everything. And if if you you the way that Kubrick shoots him and directs him in that scene is almost identical to the way that he shoots and directs uh, Jack Nicholson in The Shining when mm. uh, Jack Torrance starts to go crazy. See, I was just thinking of I, it kind of reminded me of uh, like a Frankenstein movie where he was, yeah, he was the bit. monster making his entrance. Yeah, yeah. Uh, he kind of has that, uh, you know, Kubrick shoots him. It's a low angle shot. And so he he's kind of hunched over. And, you know, if you watch the end of The Shining where Jack Torrance is going through the hedge maze, it's it's very similar, the expressions on their face and their body language and everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so it really positions Hal as the victim then at that point, uh, where he goes from being the villain in the film to being the one where violence is done against him so that humanity can make this great leap forward. Hmm. But if Hal had killed David, that leap wouldn't have happened because there would have been no humans to go through the Stargate. Or would it have happened with Hal? Yeah, that, that was, that was something I was <laughs> yeah. thinking about. I, I had meant to bring that up on a run because I, th- hmm. I wanted to talk about what happens if Hal succeeds. Right. And so well, then so, someone that murdered five humans would have gone through the Stargate. Right, right. But if, if the aliens value mind is how a mind. Yeah, exactly. I don't think the aliens are so much concerned about murder because we see at the very beginning uh, when, you know, and I know that this is the name from the novel, but for simplicity's sake, the moon watcher character, uh, they're busy beating the other monkeys, yep. you know, and there's a sense of violence is it doesn't uh, preclude them from being able to take the step forward. Mm-hmm. Uh, so obviously we get into speculative areas and there's, there's nothing in the film that says one way or another, what would have happened to Hal had he gone through the Stargate. Uh, but I also don't think it's unreasonable to interpret it as that, that possibility was there right. for him as a consciousness. That's a good one. I like that one. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And a consciousness that had started mm-hmm. to make real moral choices too. To murder. Yeah. To murder. Yeah, it was in self-defense. Right. Yeah. He's, I think, I think he would have justified it to himself as self-defense. I was going to say, it did almost seem like he was remorseful at a point. You know, I was like, I'm sorry, David, but I have to kill you. Right. right. It's David, very polite. Right. This conversation can serve no purpose. <laughs> yeah. I like that in serial killers. 
Well, I think it's a Cain and Abel vibe, though. Uh, did you say Cain and Abel, Ben? Yeah, I think there's a there's a Cain and Abel vibe both at the beginning uh, when the two apes are beating the other one, and then and kind of in the sense of uh, I get that Hal and David, and yeah, there. I think it's an interesting way to look at the biblical narrative too, in terms of that. Is that uh, what is the Bible? If Cain takes yeah. a different direction, what, what does all that mean? Oh, what what choices do those have within the biblical narrative and the implications of them? And I think very much a similar thread is going on here. Interesting. Okay, well that that kind of wraps up the the points that that you had made, and we can kind of continue. I, w- I wanted to talk just about some of the some of the things I really liked about the film. Um, and James, I think you had mentioned it that something you really liked about it was just just how well the visuals hold up. Yeah, that was definitely my favorite part of the film. And I think I think one of the big favors that the film does itself in terms of it being timeless is that there isn't so much dialogue and and you know information about the socio political situation yeah. um, that lots of times does make films seem really dated because you do have those you know the the little intimations about the um, the Russians having their own base and other people having their mm-hmm. own base and that kind of thing. Well, to go even beyond that, I think the timeless factor attribute uh, can be attributed to the fact that it's a very open ended film. Yeah, you can think tons about what you want of that film, and you can't be right or wrong. Yeah. Where then, I guess what I would say is the book, which does yep. go into all, all the details. The book to me feels which spoon feeds you and ruins it. Well, you didn't read it, so shut. <laughs> um, but that's that's exactly the impression I'm getting from yeah. you and Colin in that book. Though, I'm like, well, I don't think I would like that book. But what what I'm saying is, one of the negatives of the book is that I do feel like it is more dated than the film. Oh, yeah, because the spoon feeds you. Yeah. <laughs> Because it gives you it gives you more of the information on on the social situation than political situations, right? Um, that that so it doesn't hold up quite as well. I, it's still, and we've talked about this in the past, where when you watch a film from from earlier or read a book from earlier, there's still a value to it being of its time. Um, but it's a completely different thing for something to be timeless, and I feel like mm-hmm. the movie is much more timeless than the book is. Yeah, Arthur C. Clarke will lose his value. Uh, not to say he's a bad writer, but I, I don't see him being read 500 years from now, you know, because he is so focused on the concerns of technology and science in the 20th century, whereas mm-hmm. the film is focused on uh, humanity's place is throughout time and space. And that yeah. really is something that you'll be able to latch on to uh, at any point in the future. Yeah. Now, do you guys think if if they remake this film, which I totally oh. think they should not remake this film, but but don't you think today they go to the moon and they take a selfie with the monolith? <laughs> <laughs> Hashtag aliens. Right. Yeah. Um, and, and I wrote down here the worst special effect in the movie is Frank's shadow boxing. Um, oh, <laughs> when you know when he's when he's running around the hub, he's a horrible boxer. Yeah, um, yeah. It's it's like this is a person who's never done any boxing yeah (laughs) (laughs) but you know it's an astronaut just trying to get his his exercise in so he doesn't have to be uh rocky right um so i had i i think it was maybe it was a flash video that i saw someplace like a youtube kind of thing um that had some analyses of the of the film and i think it mentioned this about the when it shows frank and dave um when they're eating you know that they it looks like they're eating baby food mm-hmm. and yeah is that supposed to be indicating that that humans are in space but we're still just babies at it i don't know i don't know i i've i've kind of always just seen that as a little bit of 
what's food going to be like in space without gravity. And I think there are aspects of technological speculation going on in the book. Yeah. Well, um, like when he's on the moon shuttle, you know, they get the, the tray with all the cartons with the straws in it, which I think is right. pretty hilarious. actually. <laughs> um, and the space stewardess with the Velcro feet. Yeah. Right. Well, you, you can't forget the zero G toilet with its long list of I instructions. I love that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Hey, there's some things that you want to make sure you get right. Yep. Well, you know, it makes you them. think, what, what what would that be like? That's that'd be pretty yeah. crazy. No, no, yeah. it's there there it's it's high stakes getting getting toilets right in space. Exactly. Um, exactly. That could be the difference between your experience being overall positive and very negative. Could yep. turn out pretty shitty. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'll bleep that one for you. How about that? <laughs> I don't care, man. <laughs> I know, I know. No, I, I've watched the Ben DeBona Beer Show, so I, I <laughs> st- standards are different in the two media. That's right. I, I thought it was interesting. When, one of the things that I really liked about the film, we, we've talked about how it doesn't have a lot of exposition in it, a lot of explanation, but I thought a great way that they did deliver some exposition was with the BBC broadcast when they're, when they're there in the carousel and they're eating their food oh, yeah. and watching on their iPads. I thought that was a, a pretty clever way to get across some information about the mission and about Dave yeah, and Frank cool. and Hal. Yeah. Now, Colin, I think, you know, you always hear that H-A-L is one letter off from IBM, but that's kind of a myth that that's the origin of it. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. Arthur C. Clarke has said in several places that it's just a myth. And really, it's supposed to be heuristic algorithm or something? Yeah, it was something yeah, like I don't that. remember what the... What they, the I think they said for. it in the movie. Yeah. Uh, are you guys aware of the Daisy Bell song and its significance with computing? No. Um, it was actually the first song that was sung by a voice synthesizer. I'm not kidding. Huh. So, so yeah. So it's it's appropriate, um, kind of, in the fictional history of Hal that that would have been a song that he would have been taught. Yeah. So, and you can you can maybe I'll I'll try and find a link to the actual recording of the of the voice synthesizer doing it. So, and of course, a much better voice synthesizer than we got in Colossus. The <laughs> right. <laughs> he totally should have sounded like Jarvis. That would have been awesome. <laughs> well, it would. I mean, obviously, it would be Paul Bettany if they remade the movie, which right. again, not arguing for remaking the movie. <laughs> um, I wanted to talk about the Stargate thing and, and James, that you, you taking a nap during that part. And, you know, when I watched it the, the second time, I guess, I'm watching it and I'm like, Okay, and this scene should be ending now, and and, and then it, and then it kept going. And you're only thirty seconds in. You got a long way to go. Right? Yeah, but no, I felt like there were several times during the movie where things were held. Sometimes just a beat too long, but sometimes a lot. And I'm saying too long, and what I mean is longer than I expected. And right. and I just I kind of wonder if Kubrick was trying to unsettle the viewer in some way. Oh, very much so. Yeah. I think that if the Stargate scene is, you know, 45 seconds or something, it doesn't accomplish what he's trying to accomplish, which is that it becomes hypnotic. Uh, I find anyway, when I watch it, it, your mind wanders and, you know, you're seeing stuff that kind of makes sense. Like it's very clearly earth landscapes, but the colors are all wrong. Yeah. uh, You know, we do get this amazing type of symmetry and, 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 it really does kind of become the experience of what would it be like to go through this kind of alien gate and, and travel interdimensionally. But even that I think is maybe more than what he's trying to do explicitly. It's just yeah. really meant to kind of change, alter the way that you're perceiving the film. 
You know, you've just come out of the most narrative heavy portion of the film into what's probably the most ambiguous portion. And so in a sense, it becomes a narratival uh, transformation as well as the transformation Dave is going through. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, one other thing that stuck out to me is how good the makeup in is at um, oh yeah in the in the part at the end where it shows Dave can uh, continuing to get older um, because it, right. I mean and on the Blu-ray it just looks spectacular. Yeah, yeah. Now, Colin, you had you had expressed something about the makeup. I think yeah, that it turns out that two thousand and one came out at the same year as Planet of the Apes. And Planet of the Apes ended up winning the award for best costume design. So as I'm reading uh, the introduction to 2001, Arthur C. Clarke is saying again how disappointed he was that they lost to that movie. Yeah. Um, And watching it, it was pretty obvious to me that the costume and the Mike was far better in 2001 than it was in Planet of the Apes. I th- I think my counter argument to that, because I kind of thought about it, and I thought the the makeup in Planet of the Apes had to enable performance from performance and speech from the actors, and so it had a a larger hurdle to clear. And yeah, it's not spectacular ape effects. Like you never look at them for one second and go, "These are actual speaking apes." Um, but but I do feel like it accomplishes what it needed to accomplish. And so in that in that sense, I feel like technologically, it's more impressive. <laughs> I think people should just consider it a badge of honor when the Oscars rob you of a, an award you deserve. I mean, <laughs> you know, we're talking about the Academy that that didn't give <laughs> Best Picture to Citizen Kane the year right. it came out. It's like what yeah. a joke. Yeah, that's true. I mean, the, the trying trying to benchmark things yeah. by what won the Oscar is not always a good. good exactly. Idea. Exactly. And Kubrick never won Best Director, so that that shows you how much relevance there is to the Oscars. <laughs> well, anything else anybody wants to talk about about you know what they liked or didn't like about the film? Anything specific or general? Uh, I think I've covered all my points. Yeah, Colin, any have we uh, ha- has Ben won you over in any sense, or are you are you are you going to be <laughs> stolid? Uh, yeah, you know me. It takes a lot to make me change my mind. It does. Yeah, we, there, there's things that I've been browbeating you with for for what 15 years now yeah 14 years so i I can appreciate it as a visual medium but i'm not impressed by it okay well then um maybe we can go ahead and go into ranking them ben we always rank you know if we like book or movie better colin do you want to go first need i ask uh yeah novel short story movie okay wow you prefer the short story to the movie wow that made me a little sad but it's okay yeah (laughs) Well, Ben, why don't you go next then? Counterpoint. Uh, I I would do movie, short story, novel. Um, I I think the novel in some way, maybe I'm, it's a bit of a letdown compared to the movie because it explains too much, but I also (laughs) hate the other three books in the series. Uh, So from that perspective, it maybe gets, I attach a little too much negativity from those books to the first one, which is definitely the best Mm. of the four. Uh, but yeah, I'd say movie, short story, novel. I do think it's interesting that that you essentially had a full novel series that starts from something that is almost a novelization. I don't think right. that happens all that very often. What about you, James? Um, I kind of want to put the novel and the uh, the short story and the movie together in the as number one equal, I suppose. And I'm going right. to go ahead and say the novel sucks based on what you guys have told me so far. <laughs> based on yes. nothing but what we've been talking about I, I don't think it sucks I, I I don't want to give that impression that that's my opinion I the rest of the, the when, by the time you get to 3001 I was just angry uh, but 2001 is a decent novel but 
not nearly the. Uh, I don't. The I don't think I would film. enjoy it as much as the movie, though. Just oh, no, based no, no, on no. the 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 spoon feeding aspect of it. Right. I I like the the movie leave a lot open and let you kind of draw your own conclusions and to think about it. Yeah. Just I don't to know, think J- about James, it. you sound like you might be a budding, slow, boring science fiction movie fan too. So. Uh, yeah, uh, yeah, I think so. Definitely- yeah, you're ready for Solaris, man. <laughs> we could be, we could be buddies. Yeah, <laughs> uh, he's definitely not the uh, slow, boring book kind of guy, though. Either okay. I mean, neither am I really. I I I am critical of some things that people consider classics, but well, that depends on how much alcohol I've had to drink. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> that is a big factor. <laughs> ben, when, in one of our episodes, we read the uh, the Day of the Triffids, um, <laughs> okay, which is a great book. Um, but yeah. but it is uh-huh. it is like on the border. Of of slow, um, like it's a it's a book that's kind of of its time. It's it's a very measured pace in it, and James is having a really hard time with it. And then, and then <laughs> his wife goes out of town, and he starts drinking one day and just blasts through the book. So. <laughs> that's awesome. That's what you got to do sometimes. <laughs> so, uh, I think I think also uh, James is is wanting to to jump on on bashing the book just just to be uh, opposite of Colin in this case. Oh. That's usually my job, though, James. That's, that's true. So, that's true. Yeah, that's that's the the fundamental thing here. James sits back and lets me and Colin disagree. Um, well, I'm actually going to agree with Ben. Um, I I have I have kind of converted in this. You know, I thought there's no chance that I'm going to like the movie better than the book. Um, but having reread the book and rewatched the movie, like I said, I found it very compelling uh, the second time through, and I I really enjoyed it when I watched it with all you guys and. Um, yeah, I I do enjoy it more than the book. Though I did I did enjoy 2010. I th- I thought it was an interesting story, um, and the movie was okay. Maybe we can cover that one on a future podcast. Um, I think I and I would put the short story second, just because I felt like it was not thematically deep necessarily, but it it had a lot of implication to it, kind of like the movie did. So yeah, yeah. So that's that. I will capture those those rankings for our posterity. I actually Excellent. did um, a while back. We were talking about we need to do some math and figure out you know who is most likely to rank a movie <laughs> first or the book first. And I think when I did the math, I did find out I am the most likely to prefer the movie. But I think it was almost equally likely because because I with with ours since Ben on our show we we typically if we cover something that has remakes as well we try and cover all of it. Right. And so there's times where the remake film is better than the original film or that one of us prefers it anyway to the original film. And so I have to be able to capture if, if any movie was better than the book or if the original was the best thing. So yeah, I was just listening to your starship troopers episode last night and uh-huh. or you're going to do, I am legend with it's uh, all three adaptations of it. Uh, actually it's funny that you bring that up because I was talking to Colin about this the other day and James, you don't know about this, but we got um, somebody on, filled out our contact form um, uh-huh. at Adam Underwood. And he, he asked again, this is the second time he's asked for us to cover I am legend. Oh, and, cool. and yeah, that's, that's a lot of work to do because, <laughs> because we have, I'll say it's a full length novel. It's a pretty brief one. I've, yeah. I've, it's pretty short. Yeah. I've listened to the audio book um, mm-hmm. and I've only ever seen the Will Smith movie. So I'd like to watch the other one. So I was going to, I did tell him that we would, we would try but that to, includes we, like Omega man, right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah Omega Man's awesome. Heston, I like Omega man. I thought that was a cool movie. It's like, you know, what would you do if you're the last man? All the stupid shit he does. It's great. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Make me bleep you again, James. <laughs> I get your work cut out for you, buddy. Yeah, whatever. <laughs> um, you should just send it to Matt and tell him there's a couple places you might want to check. There we go. <laughs> Let him bleep it for me. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, but yeah, I, 
on, on our last show, you know, we were recording it in February and we're like, we don't know what we're doing next. And, and we were trying, Ben, to get this scheduled with you. Um, and so in between when we actually released that and, and now we kind of have our schedule going forward figured out. Um, so the next one we're going to do is the prestige, which I know you're a Christopher priest fan. Yep. Um, and an Olin fan. So, yep. yep. So I would be interested to, to get your views on, on that adaptation as well, but don't uh, spoil great, it. No, I won't spoil it. The great Christopher priest quote on it though, is that Christopher Nolan made a, uh, a completely faithful adaptation that was different in every detail. Yeah. And I like that. And, <laughs> yeah. and, you know, that's the kind of conversations that Colin and I have a lot is, um, you know, what makes a faithful adaptation and what makes a good adaptation and is it right. the same thing? Um, so, uh, but yeah, we're going to be doing that. And then we're going to hit, uh, what was it? The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Cause it'll be episode number 42. So oh, we, nice. we have to. Yep. Right. And then do the BBC series for that and the movie. Well, we're going to, so that's one of the interesting things with it is it's the book is adapted from a radio play, right? Radio, radio drama. And so, yeah, we're going to have to do that as well. Yep. Um, so that's a lot of work for that one as well. Um, and then we're going to do Fahrenheit 451. We're going to have on, um, Let's see, we, that wasn't for Starship Troopers that we had Phil on. That was for a Sound of Thunder, right? Sound of Thunder, yep. yeah. Yeah. Ben, we've, we've gotten to have a couple of cool guests where we, we had uh, Phil Nichols on from the Center for Ray Bradbury Studies. Oh, nice. Yeah, nice. and so, so um, he volunteered to come on and talk about Fahrenheit 451 um, because he's doing a, a version of the journal um, from the okay. center. Um, or he's, I think he's, is he editing it? Is that right, Colin? That's right. Yeah, so, so we'll have him on for that. So I Am Legend, if we do it, is probably going to be late summer. Yeah. So James get reading on that one and uh, we'll start watching the movies, you know, one a month until then. Well, I'm excited for you guys to do Solaris too. After, after this conversation, uh, the, the great scene in Solaris is he has like, it's kind of parallel to the Stargate scene where about 20 minutes into the movie, there's just shots of freeway for about 10 minutes. Wow. And if you, what's funny about it is that after watching, I was like, okay, you know, I don't mind that, but I'm, it just seemed really weird. And I looked it up and Tarkovsky actually put that in because he wanted people who were impatient to get up and leave the theater <laughs> uh, so <laughs> that they wouldn't complain later about his great masterpiece. Wow. So that's the type of movie you're in store for when you get to Solaris. So that's the point we lose Colin. <laughs> and i'm just ribbing you colin because colin gives me all kinds of crap because i have a hard time with tolkien and, right. and i know that um i think i was telling uh was i telling colin was i telling you about this about about how matt gave like a three-star review to the hobbit and so well, it was two stars till i yelled at him okay. enough and now it's three stars but still like anything any anytime he ranks anything above three stars you're like okay so better than the hobbit anyway yeah exactly <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah it's, it's the running joke yeah, yeah. Yeah. And we have a few of those uh, of our own. So, yep. but I, I did want to say thanks to Adam for, for getting in touch and we will, we will be doing that. Um, the other thing though, and I think this is important because um, we'll get some other ears on the show when Matt posts it in your feed. Um, Adam asked, what is, what is the pavement pounder reference? Because um, you know, that's in, that's kind of on our Facebook page. Our website is pavement podcast. And um, so I wanted to retell a little bit about what that was. And that's, it's just a reference to the fact that Colin and James and I run together. And so Colin and I ran together since, I don't know, 2002, maybe Colin. That sounds about right. Yeah. And we, you know, so we'd email and like, Hey, we're going to pound the pavement tomorrow. And so when we came up with the idea for the podcast, we're like pavement pounders podcast. Um, and then, then we ended up going with take me to your reader after I had already registered all the <laughs> domains <laughs> oh, yeah. and everything. Well, yeah. the other, the other part was take me to your reader was too long for a Twitter handle. And I'm like, ah, I don't want to abbreviate it. So that's what we have, but that works. 
Yeah. So that's why. And that's that's where we get the, you know, the pavement pounders blessing, which is a modified Irish blessing. We always say, may the road rise up to meet you and may the book always fall open to where you left off. Yes. Um, that's how we sign off. So speaking of which, we should probably sign off. Um, so Ben, before we let you go, though, um, why don't you talk about other projects you have? Everybody knows about the Sci-Fi Christian and, and I'll put a post or I'll put a link in the show notes for that. But you have other things as well. Oh, uh, well, the Sci-Fi Christian's actually kind of it for me at the moment. I, I have done the Bendy Bono Beer show in the past. I haven't done that. Uh, and that's a YouTube. Recently. Yeah, yeah, that's a YouTube thing where I just talk about beer. Um, Are you not you still know, doing Reading the Summa? Uh, I haven't done that for a while either. I, I kind of got short on time in the in the fall. But yeah, for a while I was doing some YouTube videos on uh, Summa Theologica. Um, but we do keep the YouTube page going on a semi-regular basis with the Sci-Fi Christian too, uh, mm-hmm. especially during Game of Thrones time. So that'll be starting up here in a few weeks. And, uh, you know, my claim to fame is that during season one, we had one of our videos favorited by HBO's Game of Thrones YouTube page. So I I don't know how much of a claim to fame that is, but I'll take it. That's cool. Uh, Yeah. So those are fun. And then uh, we we got an email or Colin got an email back from Piers Anthony when we were talking about the total recall novelization. So that's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I kind of. I, I tend to do the Sci-Fi Christian YouTube page a little bit more because I figure the podcast is always going, so then I can just hop sure. onto there whenever I have something to talk about that Matt's not going to be interested in, like The Exorcist or whatever. Right. You know, we're, we're never going to do that on the show because Matt <laughs> feels about horror movies the same way you do, Seth. So, yeah. yeah. All right. Yay for the wusses. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, uh, and I just want to say thank you for, for coming on with us. This was a lot of fun. Oh, yeah, it was. Thanks for having me on. Uh, anytime you want to do another Kubrick adaptation, just let me know, and I'm happy to come back. Sounds good. We, we have several of those on the list. So, yes. So we'll see what we can we can manage to get to. And, you know, we're only doing this about once a month, so it takes us right. uh, time to get things queued up. So Cool. Uh, anything else from James or Colin? No. Nope. Take nope. us out. Okay. Uh, let's see. Did I have a... Oh, here we go. I, I have a 2001 specific uh, <laughs> sign, off, sign off blessing instead of instead of the book follow up into where you left off. All right. So everybody, thank you so much for listening, and thanks again to Ben for joining us. Um, and hi to any Sci-Fi Christian listeners who are listening for the first time. Welcome. Um, but until next time, we will sign off with this version of the Pavement Pounder's blessing. May the road rise up to meet you, and may your 9000 series AIs be faultproof. <laughs> All right. Bye, everybody. Dave. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. Discussing adapted science fiction at its best and worst. I'm Seth. I'm James. And I'm Colin. <laughs> what, what's going on there, James? <laughs> Let's pop it over my beer. <laughs> uh, I see. Well, Ben would approve. Yeah, I, I didn't know we got to drink during this podcast. Matt never lets me drink on the Sci-Fi Christian, so that'd be great. If you want to go crack on, you know, we, we can wait. I always drink during podcasts. That sounds true. like a good plan to me. Seriously, if you want to pause and go grab one, I don't mind. Oh, no, I'll, I'll be okay for the duration. I, I'll, okay. uh, I'll save it for later. Okay. So, oh, man. Yeah, uh, we never edit on the Sci-Fi Christian unless yeah. I say something inappropriate, which and, happens a fair deal. Yeah, or, or if Matt tries to say... Uh, Zach Galifianakis. Zach Galifianakis. <laughs> <laughs> that was rad. Boy. Yeah. That went uh, as, as awry as it could go. That's yes, cool. it did.